Write that down. I'm Justin Nipper. I edit at fightgamemedia.com and I'm a staff writer at wrestlingobserver.com and f4wonline.com. And I am somewhat back with Japan's leading pro wrestling historian and author and broadcast journalist and wrestling sociologist, Mr. Fumi Saito. I say somewhat because actually this week's Fumi was super busy with a lot of various projects. Um, so we had to delay the recording of our Ricky Choshi Part 3 episode a bit, but that's coming next week, so don't worry. Apologies in advance, but in lieu of that, what I present to you is a supercut special edition of our profile on Jumbo Tsuruda we did last summer. So, you're getting two plus hours of all things Jumbo Tsuruda, from when he was in the Olympics to his passing, which was actually this month that it was the anniversary of his passing. And there was recently a memorial show at Korakuen Hall in Tokyo. Uh, I think it was about two weeks ago to celebrate his life. And so why not do that today? Uh, in place of Ricky Choshi Part 3, which we'll get to next week. And thanks for all the feedback on the Ricky Choshi episode, both episodes. It's been surprisingly not just positive, but enthusiastic too. And that makes me happy because I'm enthusiastic about both Choshu and Jumbo, and there's, you know, some overlap in their careers, especially in the mid-80s, so uh, I hope you guys like this supercut edition of All Japan's Jumbo Suda, okay? Um, Also, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast, the feed, the free feed on Spotify or Apple or wherever you usually listen to your podcasts, because it helps us out so much. Thank you in advance for that. Also, I have a book out on Amazon stronger than all it is a digital match guide to every single new japan strong match for the first two years of the show okay check that out if you'd like all right onwards let's get into jumbo saruda part one Okay, hey patrons, welcome back. It's Write That Down. I'm Justin Nipper of Fight Game Media and WrestlingObserver.com, and I'm here with the one, the only, Mr. Fumi Saito. Welcome back. Hello from Tokyo. Uh, so, Olympics finally finished. It's uh, Obon. Yeah, Vicky. it was the craziest thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, if we talked about this, see, if we ought to talk about this Tokyo Olympic, we can <laughs> sit here all night long. We could do a whole different this. episode oh, about God. it. Yeah, because it's the craziest thing in the middle of covid pandemic it's the craziest idea and i was against it and i wanted to boycott it and uh, i even attended the protest to you know mm. we, our neighborhood had this big protest to stop the olympics stop the olympic thing and uh, it was never reported on the news but the news or anything like that but uh, yeah this crazy idea to have actually have olympic in the middle of pandemic you know it's, it's, it would be a major spreader and sure enough it's like the numbers going up again, you know. It's crazy. I yeah. heard over four thousand in one day. This a week. day, every day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 it wasn't even and above a few hundred last year. Right at, now, at this it's time about in summer, five thousand new cases a day, every day, just in Tokyo. 
It's no good. No good. Oh, God. And also, there are not enough bed, let alone enough doctor and, and hospital staff to take care of that. And then you, you get sick and call ambulance. And the ambulance cannot take to, take you to any hospital. You know, it's like, a, no, this, not this hospital, not this place, not this place. Like being on, on ambulance, you get sicker too. Oh, my God. So well, I'm happy that you, you told me you are vaccinated. So yes, healthy yes, this week. Safe. Healthy. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I read that uh, all of the New Japan office was fully vaccinated. They put out a press release saying that they yeah. are all uh, vaccinated. And and they're so, yeah, they're so professional that, that they take temperature of every single uh, spectators. And you have to put down your uh, email address on back of your ticket. And give it to the you know the company you know mm-hmm. so w- anything happens that they get you know trace you down and, and where you are what time and all these things yes and uh, actually at the night we're recording this uh, tomorrow night New Japan is going to be in Los Angeles at the uh, the torch right yep mm-hmm. uh, that'll be on Fight TV uh, I, the English is going to be on Fight TV but it'll be in Japanese on New Japan World but uh, yeah seems like a lot of people are excited about it lots of uh, AEW and like, stars. Um, New Japan is finally forming an American branch. Feels that way. Yeah. It feels yeah, more established. Yeah. New Japan mm-hmm. of America. Yeah. With their own crew and American wrestlers going back and forth and also sending one or two Japanese wrestlers uh, to the LA branch. And uh, yeah, it looks like they have their little territory going in California right now. Yeah. And the New Japan Strong Show, they, uh, they have its own flavor. They have its own flavor. It's kind of like mm-hmm. it's different from um, the general New Japan. You know, New Japan at Korokan Hall has a different flavor from the New Japan Strong Show on Fridays. It has its own uh, yeah, style. It's strong. And also, um, the New Japan wrestlers of America, you know, was right. trained by yeah, trained by Shibata, and that's going to be just a you know, a year or two from now, now they probably have that whole, you know, the, the, the whole pack of, you know, group of American wrestlers who were trained under New Japan method. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very interesting. And those wrestlers, much like NXT, going to main roster, you know, they will be, you know, sent to Japanese ring too. Like right. New Japan raised rookies, American rookies going, coming to Japan and, and, and working in main roster. That's mm. very exciting. Yeah. I think so, especially the recent crop of fellows, the, the Carl Fredericks and the Clark Connors. And oh, they're Cohen. like a really good athlete. Just yeah. need experience. That's all. And also, they're not, you know, that uh, like independent guy who wanted to go to WWE or AEW. It's like they were trained and, start, and debuted in, in New Japan that the environment so they will be under new japan um like under new japan big rough you know big roof i uh i gotta say i got a chance marquee to, i should say yeah they feel like superstars for sure at such a young age already and i gotta say i, I got a chance two years ago to attend the super the super j cup that was in tacoma washington Ah, okay, okay. And those good. those guys were wrestling there too on the undercard, and I got a chance to meet and talk with them. And I have to say, compared, it's, it's I don't usually experience this. Wrestlers are you know fine or whatever, but these guys particularly were extremely polite, almost like in the Japanese way, <laughs> at least to me. And yeah. uh, I gotta say, one, I gotta always root for Alex Colum because actually 
we went to the same university in New York, SUNY Newpaltz. Go Hawks. Huh. Uh, I think he played rugby there or yeah. did something like that. But uh, that's where I got my degree. Uh, uh. Yeah. Go Hawks. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're good. Also, they're very good. None of, none of these new, you know, American New Japan wrestlers are ex WWE or, or ex AWE guys, you know, or not even have their independent experience outside of this new japan environment so it'll right. be very, very interesting like a very genuine new japan guy mm-hmm. just happened to be american mm-hmm. yeah that'd be interesting yeah i'm looking forward to the rest of the year and maybe next year hopefully when things clear up i i want to see some of the new japan of america guys over in japan for some bigger matches with the the other uh, fellows who just kind of graduated like yotatsuji yuya Uemura. Like they're kind of yeah. all oh, moving yeah, up to right, the right. regular roster. And they will be wearing a different costume and a different right. hairdo, and you could become like a the, the graduated into your status, you know, star status. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a great Okan or Master Wato recently. Yeah, right. Come come, come back from, as, as a different person mm-hmm. completely. So it's a, Umino will probably do that too. Oh, Umino will be IWGP champion within three years or so, right? Wow. I'm hoping. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Oh, well, look what happened to Jay White. You know, people did not expect that for him to, you know, to grow up that fast. That's true. You know? Yeah. That, that seemed really kind of uh, out of nowhere rush, but it's, uh, it's still, the plan is in place. Then there are guys like Dave Finley and Juice Robinson, you know, who has different experience and they're mm-hmm. veterans now. So, yeah. And uh, it, one g- good point for New Japan, it's it's great to have someone like Juice Robinson be on the American show and work for places like Impact because, hey, it, sure. it fits right in in a, a different way. Although I got to give Juice Robinson credit. He has really changed his style up since he arrived. He does oh, feel yeah? like, a, yeah, he feels like a, he he gets what's going on in the New Japan ring and that style, but he still stays it, he doesn't just copy what they're doing. He's adapting and doing his own take. American, on and he's uh, becoming his own. Yeah. Yeah, and, but not in a uh, forced or, or bad or cheesy way, in a oh, natural way. Because he has this star aura to begin with. He's charismatic. Yeah, very sure. much so. Yeah, very much so. Okay, well, the, today is, uh, we are doing Jumbo Tsuda. That's right. So this yeah. is the next in our, our series of uh, showcases <laughs> yeah. on on legends from back in the day. And we're gonna last time we focused on Genichiro Tenru, Tenru. and yeah. this time, this, he's kind of a parallel character to Tenru. He's, yeah, uh, yeah. He's a uh, from he came from sumo, whereas Jumbo came from the wrestling amateur wrestling world. Yes, that too. But the, okay, let's start that. Um, he went to Munich Olympic in 1972. Mm. Only having two years of experience in amateur wrestling. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Well, because he played, he played basketball all through junior high and high school, and he did not. And he's he was the varsity team in Chuo University as a basketball player, and he, he realized when he was in senior year, uh, you know, like 1972 was his college senior year. He realized, you know, he would not, you know, would not be able to go to Olympic if he played basketball, but he was big guy and he just kind of decided if he took on amateur wrestling, he might be able to go to Olympic when he's a senior in college, which exactly what he did. What a, what a elite athlete, you know, just, he did not start amateur wrestling until he was like 20. So you know that? 
Yeah. No, I mean, so what was the rest of the the wrestling team? Were they were they a strong team uh, in Japan? Um, only one guy can go to Olympic in each weight division. He was heavyweight. Okay, so yeah, so he aimed it. He he, and then he succeeded. Yeah, in a short time. So he's kind of a special person. We we can tell from the beginning. Oh, special athlete. Yeah, special like athlete. a Kurt Angle ish sort of. Uh, he can kind of do any sort of. Okay, how many? Japanese, do you know who is six feet six inches and two hundred sixty pound naturally? You know, not many, not many, not many. He's like actually, he's like a Bruiser Brody size. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's a big Japanese guy, right? Now he won all the domestic national tournament. He won uh, in the national championship, and he was able to come to Olympic. I mean, like, as he planned all along. So he is very smart. In, you know, individual that that his goal was to go to Olympic when he was senior in college. Then he aimed it. Then he switched his sport from basketball to amateur wrestling when he was rather older as an athlete. You know, nineteen year old or twenty years old. Then only just after two two years years or so training, he beat everybody and then went to Olympic. Yeah, he was. Uh... I mean, did he feel like he had a challenge? Did he feel after the Olympics? How what, what happened after he came out of the Munich Olympics? Was, did he jump right into pro wrestling from there? Yeah, uh, I, I spoke with him uh, back in 1984 when he traveled to Minnesota and he was touring as an AW world champion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to that. We'll get to mm-hmm. that. But uh, he told me that the, he, he wanted to be a professional wrestler when he was sixth grade. He decided it. Wow. Sixth grade. <laughs> so when I, yeah, when I grow up, it's like when I when I grow up, I will become professional wrestler. All right, it's like a, which he that's what he did exactly. So he he could plan out things and he conquered uh, all the plans. You know, yeah, he seemed like any anything he seemed to to focus on, he would be one of the best in the elite in uh, super athlete. He was mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you and, said, he had a build that was very unlike most other people or other men in Japan. Yeah, then the summer during summer holiday, you know, you know, during the summer, uh, the, the vac- not a vacation, but you know, schools off, right? Mm-hmm. In, in June and July and August, he was sent to sumo sumo bear when he was like eighth grade, and he didn't like it, you know, because he was big guy and you know he grew up in Yamanashi in his his the, the, his hometown his house you know his home was a uh, grape uh, and pear farm you know mm-hmm. um, his parents was doing the vegetables and the fruits you know and uh, I guess first goal was to get out of his hometown and you know come to a big city and become college student yeah and uh, Chuo University is a very you know very good school too Mm. And he was a basketball player, standout basketball player. He was already six feet something, you know, like 190 centimeters when he was like 17. And he grew even bigger, you know. And uh, um, he wanted to be a professional wrestler when he was sixth grade. Then he wanted to become, you know, to go into Olympic. And he switched his sport after he going to college. Then then in, uh, in two years time. He was able to go to Munich Olympic. He didn't win the gold medal or anything like that, but uh, he was able to become Olympian. So he, he set his goal and he just gets it. So he comes back from Germany. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's his next move from there? Like, um, actually, there was a big uh, battle between New Japan, Antonio Inoki, and Giant Baba's Old Japan. They're both both company wanted a jumbo, you know. I mean, what's Tomomitsuruta? Yeah, and uh, New Japan almost Inoki almost got him, but the Giant Baba, you know, went to his uh, Tomomitsuruta's parents' house, you know. Giant Baba himself, you know, went mm-hmm. to visit him. I, I want his, you know, your son, to come to my company. And then, and then uh, well, apparently, you know, people didn't do so. And uh, Giant Baba himself went to Jumbo's hometown and met with his parents and, and how serious about his plan and all these things. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Tura, I guess, trusted Baba and. Uh, yeah, right out of college, he went into All Japan Pro Wrestling, 1972, at the end of 1972. Yeah. So that sounds sort of like what happens in the in the States and in North America when a university goes to scout and recruit an athlete for their school. Yeah, and then the, well, normally if you were a baseball player or football player, he would be drafted, huh? Sure, sure. Yeah. But for Do you think he could... Oh, I'm sorry. Do you think uh, yeah. he could uh, be a t- is, is Jumbo the type of person who would have been an ath- a star athlete in any of the sports he chose? Ooh, but but the, not exactly baseball player type or football player type. There's no, no American football league. I mean, not that we right, have it, right. but they're not not strong. But but baseball, you start. I mean, basically basically you know all these baseball players in Japan, they all start in a little league or something, and then they they would be playing baseball all their lives, right? Yeah. Same as soccer player, football player. I mean, soccer player. And and, and Jumbo's different. He was a big, tall guy, super athlete, and uh, playing basketball, and and got the basketball scholarship and went to college and he switched his sport to amateur wrestling just so he could go to olympic which that's exactly what he did and he wanted to become professional wrestler so he became professional wrestler so he it's like he never did wrong you know Hmm. and when he started to train for pro wrestling did he spend much time in the united states yeah um it was one of these methods that uh, he was sent, he was trained a little bit in Japan, Japanese, do, all Japan dojo, but he was sent to Amarillo, Texas pretty much right away before his debut in Japan. Much, you know, just the same method that uh, Bob took on Tenru, you know, after sumo wrestling. Mm-hmm. He, he trained, you know, a few months in Japan, but he was sent to Amarillo, Texas, right? The same way. Jumbo did that first. Um, spring, uh, I'd say spring, yeah, spring of 1973, he was sent to Amarillo, Texas to train under Terry Funk and Dory Funk and Dory Funk Sr. And we covered that a little bit, you know, with um, Tenru's episode, but uh, mm-hmm. Stan, young Stan Hansen and young Bob Backlund was there when he went mm-hmm. to Amarillo, Texas. So it's, all of them became like their, like the, the biggest star of the, uh, their own era, right? In their own ways, too, in different ways. Yeah, in different ways. Yeah, right. Stan Hansen and Bob Backlund went to New York and became WWF champion. Jumbo went, you know, came back to Japan. And pretty much from the day one, he was in the main event, main event group. Never mm-hmm. worked opening match. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he- you would think in Japan you would 
you know, start your wrestlers or anybody in a professional world that uh, you would start from the bottom, like a Japanese, like a very Japanese, like, you know, your hierarchy kind of thing. But he was uh, treated as elite that uh, he was putting in the main event status right away. His first rookie year. Yeah. He spent about eight months in Amarillo, Texas. He already challenged Dory Funk Jr., uh, NWA World Heavyweight Champion at the time. He already challenged the, the heavyweight title in his rookie year, you know? So it was like, oh my gosh, right? And then the first tour back, um, I believe it was uh, October, October of 1973. His main event, very first main event was Giant Baba uh, Tomomi Tsurura, not even Jumbo yet, but the following tour, he became took on the name Jumbo Tsurura. Giant Baba and Jumbo Tsura, the ma uh, matches, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, Tsurura, uh, Jumbo Tsura and Giant Baba challenged Dory and Terry's international tag team titles, October of 73. So he came back as golden rookie and already challenged the top tag team titles. Yeah. In his rookie year, I should, I should add. So he was looked at as almost, you know, an equal or almost number two to Giant Baba. Yeah, it was uh, something to do with the timing, too, because in 1972, Giant Baba left all JWA, you know, that the original Ricky Dozen's Nippon Pro Wrestling, mm -hmm. and he, um, Giant Baba started his first company, oh, which is the only company, but All Japan Pro Wrestling, and he took Tsuruda as his very first golden rookie. And uh, he, Jan Baba did not want his new company to look like the old company. You know, right. he left the company and uh, he left a lot of guys, you know. And then and, uh, when, when Baba started All Japan in 1972, they only had maybe five Japanese wrestlers. Yeah, all together. And, uh, and then you had you already had you know the funks the dick buyer destroyer the abdul the butcher the um sometimes bruno san martino the you know all these name american talent you know rotate come in so they they had enough guys but they needed golden rookie and who is fresh and new that people haven't seen so yeah the jumbo tsura was perfect perfect um just wrestler for the spot and he's talented enough it's like, it's a more of a, the beginning was a kind of a mixed bag kind of feeling because how could this rookie guy be main eventing in Japanese mentality, right? Mm. But he was on television right away and uh, Baba put him in the main event cluster right away. And then, but he was talented enough to do so. And he was on television every week by the end of 1973, established. Hmm. And, and he probably had some credibility from the Olympics too. Yeah, yeah. What's funny though, what's funny though, that didn't make him very popular wrestler. Because hmm. it, it, at the time, it looks like he was somebody who was handed everything on silver platter. Does that make sense? Yeah. So does that mean that he had some kind of, uh, some fans didn't like him so much? He wasn't popular, I mean, as much as you would think, you know, mm -hmm. in the back of their mind, it's like, this guy's a rookie or is talented, all right, but uh, 
this guy's rookie and being on TV every week and giant Baba and Jumbo Tsura is like all designed to be top, right? Mm. And uh, yeah, he was talented enough, but somewhat older fans somewhat resented, you know, the fact that this guy's a rookie, he should be in, in an opening match. I mean, mm. there's some mentalities there, right? You would understand how Japanese would think. They, they, it seems like some people want to challenge Jumbo and say, hey, do you really deserve your spot yeah, in the hierarchy? Yeah, right. Because right, you right. just came out of nowhere. And all this, but uh, kind of. Yeah, but the Olympic, yeah, the, the former Olympian helped, you know, of course. But is he as good as any um, other so-called superstars at the time? Mm. And uh, yeah, he had to, I guess, keep proving, you know. And starting in 1974, he was very um, much that in the main event right away. See, in his rookie year and second year, he had challenged Dory Funk Jr. for NWA heavyweight title, right? World heavyweight title. He challenged Jack Briscoe. For the, mm-hmm. Then he had challenged Terry Funk uh, following year, another NWA champion and challenged Harley Race the following year. So he had challenged every single NWA World Heavyweight Champions in Japan. That will put you in like a very convincing main event spot, don't you think? Do you find that Jumbo compared with other Japanese pro wrestlers at the time was maybe to fans uh, more believable as a uh, wrestler against foreign wrestlers because of his size and maybe his credentials. Um, yeah. You- what was so strange almost, you know, in hindsight was that he was already good worker. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing rookiness. I mean, when he came back after eight months experience in Amarillo, Texas, he worked, he worked like, like a veteran already. He actually he worked he, like an American wrestler, sort of. Yeah. He worked exactly like Dory Funk and Terry Funk. That's what I'm saying. He came back with the four different suplexes, um, double arm, you know, underhook suplex, that the belly to belly front suplex we have it, and the side suplex and very high bridging German suplex. Four suplex, perfect. And this is everything he did was so perfect. That's what, what that was exactly what made him not very popular. You know what I'm saying? He's too perfect. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That was a you know real long battle that he had to face because he was already so good and far ahead of everybody else that that uh, technically he was already one of the top in Japan and uh, that doesn't necessarily make you a popular person. How's that? Mm. Yeah, that, that was very strange because he was not all that popular in his five years, you know, very first five years of his career. He was already good, though. He was really, really good. You know, the, the roster they had, you know, look at this 70s All Japan roster that, that uh, Baba on top, right? And then the num- clear number two right away, Jumbo. Then all the name American talent that come to All Japan, that the tour after tour after tour. And uh, he had this pretty even up matchup with all these su- superstars from America. You know, then uh, like I was like, you know, I was a little kid, you know, still, you know, might be in seventh grade, eighth grade or something and just watch all Japan pro wrestling every Saturday night. Jumbo is kind of a new character in that show. But uh, this guy comes onto TV and 
does have like perfect match in my eye, you know? And uh, yeah, but they didn't make me a big Jumbo fan either, you know? It just was strange, you know, when you look back. Yeah. Because Inoki's Friday night television was always like Inoki theater, right? right. Inoki bringing some, you know, famous American wrestler, superstars, then Inoki beat him, you know? And uh, all year long, the G- Giant Baba's uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling, you had Abdul the Butcher all year long, pretty much. You know, something to do with Abdul the Butcher against Destroyer, the Abdul the Butcher against Baba, Abdul the Butcher against who and so and so, a tag team or something bloody all year long anyway. That uh, Inoki's television always had Tiger Jeet Singh, the same role, that he's a heel, the biggest heel. But... Uh, yeah, it felt like I was watching Inoki against Tiger, Tiger Jeet Singh in some form all year long, you know. And mm. uh, Jumbo didn't really fit into this, you know, bloody battle thing. When you, yeah, when you think about it, it's really strange. The TV code was different back in the 70s, you know. In primetime television on network channel, they were showing something really bloody. They don't do that now, do they? Even today... By today's standards, I think some of the Sheik and the Funks and Abdullah, those matches are very bloody. That's right. At the time, yeah. We talked about Jambu Tsuda, but yes, Atsushi Onita was Jambu, uh, that uh, uh, Giant Baba's pretty much not the number one boy, but uh, he was like, he treated, Baba treated Onita like his son, you know? But he was never a heavyweight superstar. A little bit later on, like in 1981, 82, Baba ended up giving Onita their World Junior Heavyweight title and all those things. But uh, uh, Jumbo was treated differently because of size and, athlete, I mean, genuine athletic background, college graduate. Whereas Onita started, you know, and he came to Baba's company when he was age of 15, you know, barely finished ninth grade. And uh, this is two completely different backgrounds. Kind of like a polar opposites, very mm-hmm, opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They were friends, though. They were mm-hmm. really friends. Yeah, they were friends. But uh, Baba uh, Onita was somebody who was carrying Baba's back, washing Baba's back in, in, in the shower and all these mm-hmm. things. That Jumbo never carried anybody's bag or anybody's suitcase or anything like that. He was his own star from the day one. He uh, skipped the line. Even. Uh, yeah, but it was not Jumbo's choice. Correct. Uh, yeah, Jumbo's choosing. It was Giant Baba's, you know, method of making somebody a star, like a different method. See, um, this is hard to compare, but uh, the only person I can come up with was like uh, somebody who was main event from the rookie year, like somebody like Lex Luger. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know Goldberg or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's and different still. Clumsy, you know, Lex Luger wasn't you know, all that, you know, smooth, you know, worker until he worked program with Ric Flair a little right. bit later on. But uh, he was put in the main event position from the day one. That's what I'm saying. And the Jumbo was the same way. He was main eventing his rookie year. And he was already a good worker. And like, like I said, in his rookie year, second year, third year, he had challenged every single NWA World Heavyweight Champion at the time. Like I said, Dory Funk Jr., the Jack Briscoe, the Hardy Race, the Terry Funk. The, he had challenged every single NWA World Champion all the way to like Ric Flair, Ric Flair era. 
Yeah. Then finally, he had beaten Nick Bockwinkle in 1984 to become very first Japanese AWA World Heavyweight Champion. He's the only AWA champion. Baba didn't even touch it. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. So yeah. Well, the, at the time that the the story was, Jan Baba was the only Japanese wrestler who had ever held NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Okay, mm-hmm. and Jumbo was the only AWA World Champion, the Japanese wrestler, who, and he actually toured America with that belt. Yeah, that's when I met him. You know, a few times. That he used to come to the Japanese restaurant I was washing dishes. <laughs> My youth, you know, when I was in college, you know, I of course you wash dishes, right? Mm. <laughs> and I was washing dishes at a Japanese restaurant called As- Asuka, just Asuka. like WWE Asuka. Yeah. Wow. Well, the Asuka is like a flying bird, right? So mm. it's a yeah. kind of generic name. But the restaurant Asuka in downtown Minneapolis, right in front of First Avenue, you know, Prince's First Avenue. Yeah. He did uh, in Japan. It's called Arubaito. Arubaito, yeah. That's, That's from German, actually. That's from the German word Arubait, that work for work. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's that's the Japanglish. I mean, like a, mm. that the German word that was adopted into Japanese word. Yeah, Arubaito mm. sounds like a more like a part-time job for you know high school student or college students. Yeah, yeah. convenience store or restaurant or. Um, something that or carry heavy loads, some stuff, or sure, yeah, yeah, or get on the truck and carry something or something, or delivery or something, yeah. I so I was watching. Quite a, yeah, I think quite a few wrestlers did that in Japan too before they they were uh, pro wrestlers. Like Kota Ibushi comes to mind. I think he was like a trash man or something. Oh really? Okay. Well, you gotta find the time to train, and, and you know, you leave yourself free. You know some time to actually connect it with wrestling people and then you should not be having a full-time job then and uh, you know what i'm saying kind of like a being a band exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah so you got to keep your day job i was going to college and i was washing dishes at a japanese restaurant and the asuka restaurant jumbo used to come in like a couple times a day a couple times a week maybe even more you know so as you know every time he shows up I'm going to post, you know, stool and then you know, sit right next to him. Kind of rude, but uh, can I talk to you? And then and I, uh, I was able to talk to him hours and hours, you know. So uh, what was he like? Oh, very professional. Yeah, very professional and uh, very independent, very private. And but he was, yeah, that uh, spent enough time that I was able to speak to him, like how he wanted to become a professional wrestler. He told me back in sixth grade, he already decided that, you know, that he would become a professional wrestler and how he wanted to you know, go to Olympic in his you know, senior year in college and basketball wouldn't do it. So he switched his sport to wrestling and, uh, and just over two years of training, he was able to win the national tournament. And sure enough, he went to Olympic. Wow, you know, success. And uh, yeah, he, he had no doubt in his mind that, uh, that uh, Jan Baba in all Japan was his right choice. Yeah. So maybe he was the one of the very first rookie that uh, Inoki and Baba fought over. Must be. Yeah, there Tenru? was a Ricky Choshu. No, Ricky Choshu. 
I told you, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because he was also uh, he went to Olympic 1972, same Olympic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for Korea. Yeah, for Korea, because well, he was born in, and raised in Japan, but he his family always kept the Korean passport. Therefore, he um, he was able to represent Korea, you know South Korea as an Olympic team. But he told me he was bullied, you know, <laughs> and yeah, during you know by by the Korean wrestling team because he couldn't speak the language perfectly. You know? I see. Yeah, and also the reverse uh, racism, almost. You know, like bully is like, "Well, you're not even Korean." You know, in Japan, uh, he was said, "You're not even Japanese." This is very silly. historical that uh, we should talk about this. You know, discrimination kind of thing. You know, another topic. But uh, Ricky Choshu, yes, representative South Korea, went to Munich Olympic. Same Olympic Jumbo was in. They fought over Riki Choshu too, yeah. Mitsuo Yoshida, yeah. So one question I wanted to ask for you, wasn't it true that um, when Jumbo was working in the States early on, they, they didn't call him Jumbo yet, they called him Tommy. Yeah, Tomobi Tsuruta, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or just for like the American style, Tommy Tsuruta. Yeah, yeah, in, in Amarillo, Texas, because he didn't have the name Jumbo yet. Mm. The name Jumbo name was given to him after his, you know, he came back. Giant Baba and Jumbo Tsuru, <laughs> you know, two big guys. So he had the AWA title in '84, but he lost it. He would lose it to a, it was a Rick Martel, yeah. Rick Martel, yeah. By um, then, I was in ringside photographer, you know, yeah. Uh, Rick Martel would go over to all Japan around then too, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a famous not. Well, you can call it unification title match. Ric Flair, NWA champion against AWA world champion Rick Martel. They had that in, in the Sumo Palace. Was that a 86, 87? I have to look back. But uh, yeah, there was a AWA champion against NWA champion match. Yes. And after the big title run with the AWA title, I do recall him and Yoshiaki Yatsu becoming a strong team as well. Uh, yes, after Ricky Choshu and his guys went back to New Japan in 87, Yoshiaki, Yoshi, you know, Yoshiaki Yatsu decided not to go back to New, you know, his New Japan and stayed with Baba's company and became Olympians because Yatsu went to 76 Montreal Olympic. So two Olympians became baby right. tag team. Yeah. Olympians. Yeah. But that's a little bit later phase though, because Jumbo's, you know, you, we we can distinguish his career in two different sets of uh, era. That uh, uh, during seventies, Jumbo would be wearing a ring costume, much like your Terry Funk, you know, blue, red, and stars, mm-hmm. red ring boots or blue ring boots or yellow ring boots, and uh, multicolors, short trunks, you know, red and blue stars on it is like a real young baby face look even then, the hairstyle was different it was a little like longer yeah right and permed yeah in 81 when he when baba stepped down pretty much stepped down from the main event position and made jumbo his main guy he that's when he started wearing black trunks and black shoes yeah so it's two different distinguished era yeah and that's so, when he started using Luthet's backdrop, you know, the belly to back suplex thing, mm-hmm. finish as a finish. 
and that the storyline story line was made that the Luthes came in and taught him how to do the backdrop suplex. And that's when he started using that as his new finish. Up until then, he was using different suplex, you know? Yeah. It, didn't he start using the Thez press as a finish later on too? Uh, not Thez press, but the backdrop, you know? That's Just the backdrop. Okay. Yeah. Oh, he did have that the Thez press. You're talking about Thez press, like a, you, you press the whole pin. body. Yeah. Like a Stone Cold Steve Austin exactly, did. Yeah. yeah. He used that too. He used that too. Yes. But he was using it in early years too. Yeah. Mm. We call it uh, flying body scissors drop. <laughs> flying body scissors drop. See, that's uh, so many of uh, the... Japanglish? <laughs> well, in English, sometimes the word, uh, the names are different, or sometimes they're they're inherited from Japan. Like, in English, it's funny. We say hip attack. Hip attack. Yeah, right. Flying hip attack. <laughs> but a lot of people in English don't understand why they say hip. But the word for hip is it's kind of different in Japanese. It's like a hip, that hip area, the whole ass, yeah. hip, thigh. It's more general. So yeah. Well, some people were translating as a butt bump too, right? So, so but I think butt bump in English is quite accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But Asuka yes, likes was, to use that these days. And oh, who who does that? Uh, Asuka, Asuka. Yeah. Asuka does that. Asuka does that. Yeah. In in Japan, that it's uh, pretty much Shiro Koshinaka's move. Mm. Yeah, his, and his famous he game. was using a jumping knee attack. How's that in high yes. knee? Yes. Yeah, jumping knee attack. That's English, but we're very much Japanese. Japan <laughs> yeah. Jumping knee attack, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he that, he was using that. Yeah, he was like already, according to Bruiser Brody, the exact quote from him that. Uh, Jumbo was so far ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. As, as a matter of fact, Jumbo Truda was Bruiser Brody's favorite opponent in Japan over Inoki or anybody else. Did and you know that? I didn't know that he was his favorite, although I did know that I think Jumbo is maybe one of the only wrestlers to pin Bruiser At Brody. At the end of the very last tour before his death, yes, that uh, actually... Jumbo and Brody had more single match against each other than anybody else with you know one another. That uh, Jumbo was always Brody's favorite, um, like a challenger, while Brody had this international singles heavyweight title. Remember, like real early '80 part before AWA run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, international heavyweight title was actually the Ricky Dozen's heavyweight title. When he brought uh, supposedly Ricky Dozen beat Ruthess in uh, Los Angeles in 1958, he brought the heavyweight title back as an international heavyweight title. Ricky Dozen held that title until his death. Then later on, Baba revived that title and, and, with All Japan Pro Wrestling. Oh, during the 60s, that international heavyweight title was the giant Baba's signature heavyweight championship before All Japan. PWF run. Then uh, oh, he left the title uh, when he left the company, and somebody like Kintaro Oki or a couple other guys held it. But uh, in, I believe it was like 81, 82, that uh, Baba decided to revive the heavyweight title and gave it to Dory Funk. And Dory Funk Jr. and Bruce Brody had long program, and eventually Brody beat. Dory Funk Jr. to become pretty much signature international heavyweight champion. 
for like three year period. Then there was real long program Jumbo against Brody uh, over this international heavyweight title. Eventually, Jumbo beat Brody. It was a D- DQ finish, not quite one to three, but uh, that uh, Jumbo beat Brody for the title, and he held that you know international heavyweight title for a long time. And in Japan, Which that's is, right. The, in Japan, the DQ finish, the title can still change hands. PWF rules. PWF rules. <laughs> yeah. And another interesting PWF rule is that, you know, that the counting right out, you know, outside the ring is 10 in America, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in Japan, it's traditionally 20, remember? Mm-hmm. But PWF rule, it's 10. Therefore, they use that method to beat somebody important. You know, fighting outside the ring and you can't come back within the count of 10 and the referee Joe Higuchi will do a very, very iffy count and whomever gets in the ring, just nick a time, beat him. You know what I'm saying? The, the very like late 70s into early 80s type finish when you can't, when you don't want to hurt some, I mean like uh, beat somebody one, two, three. Many double count out finishes. Double count out, double DQ or no contest. All those things were still happening until late 80s that the, all the finish became pretty clean, remember? Mm. I remember oh, most of Choshu's matches were great and then they would finish on the At the, the end, at the end, yeah, I was so sick of it as a kid. Mm. And you would know that the two superstars, you know, face each other, ah, it's going to be DQ, ah, it's going to be double counter. You kind of right. knew that as a kid. Then you learn about the world. You can't really, you know, have clear winner. <laughs> you know, then they come back with same lineup, same title match with same guys and you do it again, you know, and uh, I guess you really learned about the world by wrestling. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. But uh, Jumbo was that. So uh, before international heavyweight title, there was UN, United National Heavyweight t- title. Remember? Mm-hmm. He had that run, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of interesting that, that the, Giant Barber's Old Japan had more than one singles heavyweight title. You want they never tell you which one's above another, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Kind of ambiguous, you just yeah, ambiguous, right? Because you have then you have to guess PWF, right? Pacific Wrestling Federation title that is not a world heavyweight title rec- recognized by PWF, but you have you United National Heavyweight title, and you have International Heavyweight title. Mm. It's like which one sounds better, right? They kind of sound the same almost. <laughs> yeah, they're all important. And so, when you have three singles title, I guess all three of them become not so important too. You know, it's really interesting. But all three together would become pretty important. That doesn't happen until 1990. Stan Hansen having PWF and UN title going against Jumbo Tsuda's international heavyweight title. They fought over these two, three belts and Jumbo unified all three belts and triple crown, therefore triple crown from that point on. They're the same title that the today's old Japan Pro Wrestling have. Although championship, physical championship belt ain't the same. You know, they were using those you know, three old belts up until a couple of years ago, but I guess they had to return to Mrs. Baba's home, you know. Well, uh, at the Ota Award show a month or two ago, they actually brought out the... Brought the belt, the physical belt back, you yep. know, like uh, old antique. 
Yes. Yeah, they used it. Oh, like a I wish. For yeah, Jake Lee would wear that belt. You know, the give him like really historical rub. You know, I mean, I I, I would love on. that, but I guess it's up to the Baba family, isn't it? Right, and uh, I guess they um they borrowed that belt for just for the night, huh? Yeah, rental. <laughs> then they went back to the new design belt, you know. Yes. And sometimes it's the design of the championship belt is very important, don't you think? I think so. And how yeah. it looks on the around the waist or on the shoulder of someone. Yeah, the, the the physical same international tag team belt and PWF tag team belt, they still use that belt. You know, the guy the ones that the Suama and Ishikawa or uh, Aoyagi and the Miyahara has those the tag team belts. Those were the same physical belt Jan Baba and Anthony Inoki together were wearing way back 50 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. right? They yeah. look like a real belt for your pants. <clears throat> yeah, it's like a touch the game game ball, right? It's like when I was a kid, you know, that the champion walks by, you try to touch the guy's back or yeah. you know, touch the belt or something. Yeah, I touched it, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did that as a kid. And, oh, one uh, thing I wanted to to ask you about before, because we were talking about the Triple Crown, but before that, we've mentioned that Brody died, and I wanted to just confirm: wasn't there a plan to have Bruiser Brody and Jumbo as a tag team? Before? Yeah, that year. Yeah, uh, Baba planned on 1988 real tag team championship in this, you know, like no end of November into December tag team tournament. The plan was Jumbo and Bruiser Brody as a team. That's big. Another Imagine team was that. Tenru and Stan together. Yeah, it's like the mirror opposites of each other. It's yeah, so, right. Uh, but the Stan and Tenru team happened the following year, though. Right, right, and that yeah. continued. Yeah, yeah, but the, yeah, that the that would turn that would turn Bruiser Brody much weighted babyface turn. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was ready for it too. Yeah, and people were ready for it. And Stan would only work heel, but people react to him like babyface. That's really interesting, you know. See, Stan never changed it. You know, he always worked heel side and worked like heel. But for some reason, at the end of the night, he was the most popular one at, at the building. It just happens naturally. The way he works or like convincingly beats somebody clean, one, two, three, with Lariat, never disappoint anybody. Then you go, Wee! And then people, all the you know Japanese audience go yes with him, you know. Yeah, he was very unpredictable in a in a fun way. You couldn't predict what his next move would be. Yeah, and then also Stan Hansen at the time he got pinned, you know, probably once or twice a year, you know, by somebody important like sometimes Baba, sometimes Jumbo, and sometimes Tenru. But what he does is though that what Stan does. One, two, three, you get pinned, right? But not quite big move, one, two, three in the middle of the ring. But some most of the time, it's a, either backslide or a, a small package inside cradle or something like a ebigatame kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. but shrimp hold. Yeah, yeah, shrimp hold. Yeah, ebigatame. That's a translation. Uh, just as soon as the referee hit the three count, one, two, three, Stan gets up and be start beating everybody. Mm-hmm. 3.1. <clears throat> I guess. So the match is over. Stan got pinned. But he gets up so mad that they start running all the young wrestlers out of the ring and start beating everybody. And then he runs out of the ring and walk into the crowd. And people kind of forget what, what just happened. They forget he lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like that. And he keeps his momentum. 
I guess so. Yeah. The, the record shows that, yes, Stan was pinned and the uh, title changed hand and stuff like that. But uh, Stan is just as strong the night after that, you know? Mm. Yeah. And that was Jumbo Stan's and, way. And Jumbo and Stan had a kind of, not a, I don't know about a rivalry, but I, I do remember that you told me a story. I think this is when uh, we did our shows on Stan Hansen and the two ran into each other at a Japanese bar restaurant after, after the show, like in local town mm-hmm. and like, you're looking for a place to eat real late at night after the show. Mm-hmm. You find this, you know, Chinese restaurant, you know, like uh, middle of nowhere and that open until the morning or something. Then he walked in and Jumbo was already eating, you know, then Stan and they didn't sit together. You know, they waved at each other, smiled and sat in different table. And somebody gets, you know, somebody who never finished the dinner first gets up, you know, you, you pay at the cashier, right? And they look at each other and wave it again. That was enough, he said. Mm. And the friendship and camaraderie and trust are there, you know? But it's very... Um, yeah. Old-fashioned. Mm. Old-fashioned, yeah. <clears throat> and also Jumbo being very private too, you know? Right. Not right. too many people knew his condition, medical condition. Yeah. Well, we should get, yeah, we should go into that sometimes. I mean, yeah. like, not sometimes, but the very next, you know, that the part two of Jumbo episode, we I should talk so. about his, yeah, because um, actually after his health decline, that's why he became really popular. Isn't that ironic? Mm-hmm. And he really he, helped create the next generation. He's a very important Oh, part. yeah, because even in wrestling, you got to be beat. You get beat in the middle of the ring, not just leaving, you know. When you change the somebody, you know, main event status to somebody and create new star for, for the company, you wouldn't just walk away. You just have to do the match and get pinned in the middle of the ring and uh, establish that. And then people know something has just changed. Yeah. Clearly. And he, uh, yeah, there's a lot more to talk about because he did kind of become, um, he, the Jumbo in 1990 was a lot different than Tomomi Tuta in the early 70s. Oh, right. Not, not rookie anymore. He's 10, 15 years older. And I just realized he was born in 1951. So he would have been 70 years old now. Wow. I mean, I mean, he is still with us. Yes. But he, That's quite young. He died when he was like 48, 49. Yeah. yeah. Only one year after Baba's passing, which was another symbolic thing that uh, Japanese wrestling lost both Jumbo, uh, Giant Baba and Jumbo in, in the two consecutive years. That made Misawa's crew even stronger, though, in hindsight. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I think just this is just in the character, not in real life, but uh, <clears throat> Jumbo felt more like a the bully in all Japan later on before he he was so much bigger than any of them, you know, compared to your next main event guys, Misawa, Toshiaki Kawada, Kenta Kobashi, Akira Taue. Taue is pretty tall. And the Jun Akiyama, right? Probably none of them. I mean, they were all shorter than Jumbo. Jumbo was the tallest, older, 10 years older than, you know, any of them, but uh, he was much taller, much heavier. And, just 
such a veteran and a great worker. He was and built the same kind of way <laughs> Bruiser Brody was. The yeah. same. This is the Japanese. High. Yeah, yeah, Japanese mirror kind of version, just in terms of body and body size. Yeah, not exactly bodybuilder type, but just <laughs> big guy, the thick football player type. Yeah, yeah. That's wrestler why body. In Japan, it's not WWE ring. You don't have to look like bodybuilders. Mm. You know, uh, Giant Baba never looked bodybuilders. You know. And Jumbo was the same way. And Tenru, former sumo wrestler, you wouldn't look like bodybuilders. No know? way. <clears throat> in, no on way. the other hand, Inoki built a little bit more, like, not a bodybuilder, but the, the more athletic, you know? He was more like an action star, Bruce Lee. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Sakaguchi, Tatsumi mm-hmm. Fujinami, Riki Choshu, Kengo Kimura. Yeah, all, like, similar, you know, like, uh, physique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think New Japan has always been a little more uh, focused on the the look Athletic. and the aesthetic. Yeah, even up to like Tanahashi, he's a great example. Oh, yeah, of this good version. Guy. Yeah, yeah. Or, right, or right. Ibushi, they ha- they have a look that's a lot different than say Suwama Shujishikawa. But both have. Oh right, right. They both it's have okay. a big appeal. Yeah, it's okay though. You don't have to be good looking. It's, this is not a handsome contest, you know. No, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah, so the professional wrestler can have certain professional wrestler look, you know. Mm. Hardy Race was called handsome Hardy Race because he wasn't handsome. Mm. Or the <laughs> yeah. recent, uh, the the beautiful Bobby. Beautiful Bobby, yeah, that kind he of thing. passed yeah. away, unfortunately. Right, right, right. So uh, they always had this kind of wrestling lingua to it, you know? Yeah. And Jumbo was star from the beginning, and he was already one of the greatest, you know, best worker in second year in. He was having equal match against... Real superstars at a time, like uh, people like Dory Funk, Terry Funk, Jack Briscoe, Hardy Race, or even um, they brought in a real veteran like Fritz von Erich and had him beat him. You know, mm. and he had a single match against then 49 year old Vern Gagne. He had a <laughs> yeah, Billy Robinson match. Billy Robinson, he beat Billy Robinson, yeah, right. for yeah. the title. Yeah, oh, every single American name wrestlers, yeah. Uh, um, Jumbo pretty much face all the single superstars from America, the ones that already had single match against Giant Baba in previous era, it was fed to Jumbo in that era. Yeah, he seems like he could be one of the best uh, wrestlers of that era. Japanese wrestlers. He already who could, was. But who he could, was. Particularly who could work with a foreign talent in a, in a way that wasn't there was no styles clash. It's actually kind of no uh, style clash. He yeah, worked very like, smooth because he patterned his style after Terry Funk. Mm-hmm. And you watch 70s old tape of Jumbo. Yes, he does work like Terry Funk. I didn't know that. I didn't have the good eyes for that. I mean, when I was a kid. Now, when you, if you want to watch that the old 70s, you know, old tape from that era, you can clearly see the Jumbo was like Terry Funk, you know, in the ring. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, very similar. Very similar. And he could have... Uh, very convincing, very even matchup with people like Mil Maskers too. Mm-hmm. Which he was good with is, smaller wrestlers. Mm-hmm. And also Mil Maskers being famous for being very difficult to work with, right? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Right. But he had this very you know famous single match and he actually beat Mil Maskers with the count out outside the ring. No pinning, but uh, still beat, beat Mil Maskers in 1976. Very impressive, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he was he was just the uh I mean, would you say he was 
as popular at a point as um, Baba well, Inoki? Actually, in his no, he was never popular as Baba or Inoki. That's the point I'm trying to cross. That in his real peak years, when he was really one of the best in the whole world, the best worker, an all-around good wrestler, and he can have you today's what the five-star matches or so. That he wasn't all that popular. He was maybe too perfect. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And I think that really came out late in the late 80s, 90s when... Uh, yeah, when the health was declining and he was hitting 40 years old and and younger guys coming up like Misawa, mm-hmm. you know, Kawada and all these guys are coming up. And uh, he that's when he became really, really popular. It's like, you know what? I've been watching Jumbo for 20 years and I love this guy kind of thing. Yeah, right. guys. Well, because... <laughs> wrestling fans are almost opportunities you know that, that you decide who you like because when John Cena was really really good he wasn't even all that popular now he's super popular you know what I'm saying and he barely wrestles right right but he comes off like superstar I mean bigger star than uh, than the current guys what's yeah. the old phrase uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder <laughs> I guess yeah and so. also, he was away too. You know, when he first thing, he got sick in 1991, I believe, 92, that uh, he was gone for like you know, six months period. And uh, he was never the same. He could only have tag team match situation where he tags out and take breaks. You know, he never had much of single match program after that. Mm. But the, whenever he came back, it was like so much welcomeness just... I mean, it's like, it's good to see him back kind of thing. Yeah, yeah but I, I think once uh, Misawa beat him in 90, and I think when all the younger guys started to establish themselves, I don't think he could really keep up at that pace. They, they oh, changed no. they the style nev- And bit. also, they never had single match, and Kawada never beat him. Kobashi mm. never beat him. Taue never beat him, you know? So his position was locked. But he was never full-time again after 92. So. Yeah. And yeah, he was also Misawa's tag team partner early on when he was Tiger Mask. Right. Uh, when they first established PWF tag team title, uh, Stan and Ted DiBiase against people like Jumbo and Tiger Mask, which Tiger Mask was Misawa, yes. Mm. Yeah, okay. we could start from around that period, period of time for the uh, part two of our Jumbo uh, episode. Yeah, because the the next part is very. I think it's different. I think we need to cover more detail. It was it wasn't as long of a time, but it was when all Japan really shifted the the generation from. Yeah, um, and then also Tenru and his guys left. Ten right. guys left all Japan. Yeah, know? all Japan really changed uh, around this time. This was and the biggest change. Giant Bob, yeah, and also that the American influence has changed. That. The, NWA Crockett promotion was bought, you know, by Turner TV, and it became WCW. There was not no more NWA establishment, and Baba cut the tie with NWA, and all the titles up until that point, you know, sanctioned by PWF and recognized by NWA. Tag team title, the international heavyweight title, that the, the Asian tag team title, the UN title. Up until then, they were saying sanctioned by PWF and also recognized by NWA. Then they stopped saying NWA completely. Yeah. So uh, pretty much cut the tie. Mm. American establishment. 
And there was that, and there was, and I believe he also had a kind of um, uh, <clears throat> tough relationship with Mrs. Baba. Uh, Jumbo? Yeah, kind of complicated. I think Jumbo still, I have to uh, point that out that uh, Jumbo was the one who had very good relationship with, with uh, Mrs. Baba. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Baba was the one who was really, really careful with Jumbo from the mm-hmm. day one. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to f- tackle all of that in the next and final part of Jumbo's showcase yes. because, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause I want today's, you know, fan to really think, you know, Jumbo was very, very important historical figure in Japanese wrestling history. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, the style that he was uh, a part of and, and doing, it's kind of, I don't know if it's misunderstood or maybe it's, it's just time has passed, but the style, you know, it's not a, a flashy style. It's something that, He's, you know, I think the reincarnation of him now is Suama. That's very the, similar. Very that's similar. the only person I can think of. But yeah. Yeah, but so, the Suama does not have or hasn't had any program with big Americans. No. Just, uh, what's his name? Doring. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but that, that's, it was a different time. Yeah. Yeah, that different time. time. Yeah, him. so it wasn't exactly Bruiser Brody or Stan Hansen or all the big guys, big guns from states. Yeah. But the big guns from states at the time was all locked in with this WCW or, or WWE, you know. All mm. the big guns are already under contracts with WWE, you know. And uh, you need to develop your own American talent in Japan. All right, welcome back, patrons. This is Write That Down. I'm Justin Nipper of FightGameMedia.com and WrestlingObserver.com. I'm back with the one, the only, Mr. Fumi Saito. Welcome back. Hello from Tokyo. Today is second part of our Jumbo Tsuda Part 2 Showcase Profile. We're going to kind of... What we're going to start with, we're going to start at his career in all Japan in 1984-1985-1986、the、mid-80s、era。because、this、is、where、the、real、big、shift、in、his、character、seemed、to、change、right。right。because、of、ricky choshu。yeah。so、we、have、to、start、with、uh、ricky choshu's、strong、new、japan、
then the entire Rikichoshu uh, faction in Shingun uh, became a uh, actual company body. They, they, they cooperated themselves as a Japan Pro Wrestling, mm-hmm. Japan Pro, we call it, and signed the contract with All Japan and Nippon Television's Channel 4. So the entire Rikichoshu faction migrated into All Japan. It was more so a Channel 4 Nippon Television decision than the Baba's decision, okay? Uh, that's uh, pretty much, um, I don't have to talk about myself, but the uh, uh, beginning of January 85, that uh, that's when I basically started full-time with weekly pro wrestling, Shukan Pro Wrestling of Baseball Magazine. So I was I started being there all the time, you know? I came back from the States and all that. And... Uh, the dressing room, you know, like in a small dressing room, you've been to downstairs of Korakan Hall, right? Mm-hmm. The building actually isn't all that big. No. Now, yeah, you have all Japan, Japanese dressing room with 20 guys in it. And you have American dressing room. You always have like a 10 Americans in it. Then 15 uh, that the Riki Choshu's Ishingun had their own dressing room. So then they had 13 matches a night, you know, and uh, six man tag team, eight man tag team, six man tag team, six man tag team. It's like too many guys. Like you got forty five to fifty guys working every night. Crazy, huh? Very hot crowds too. People loved what was going on. Yeah, and that uh, that really changed the basic format of all Japan pro wrestling. You have Ricky Choshu's guys, not Ishingun now, but it's a Japan pro wrestling with different, you know, tracks to top and bottom. Um, they took off, you know, pretty much half the lineup and you have traditional Japanese, um, all Japan babyface Japanese dressing room. And you have American, like you, Stan Hansen, the Tiger Jitsing, the, you know, reg- the Funks, the regular American team. Um, up until then, we're talking about J- Jumbo now. Jumbo Tudor and his role was take up on top American superstars in main event place, right? Right. But ha- by having Ricky Choshu's 15 guys, you know, working and start working full time with Old Japan, that forced Jumbo into this tag team situation against Ricky Choshu's group basically every night. So up until then, Jumbo never really worked against Japanese heels. That really changed his style. Does that make sense? Yeah, and he stopped working alongside Giant Baba as much, and he... he... Giant, then, yeah, by having Ricky Choshu's whole clan, whole faction coming in and signed with that group, that the Baba, that was the opportunity that Baba really stepped down from that uh, top position and made his position like your... Um, six-man tag team, rather comic uh, six-man tag team before the intermission type of deal. That's kind of a classic All Japan uh, part of the show, right? Yeah, yeah, I enjoy it. The, you know, the light Not part. so much comic, but uh, uh, before the inter- you know, intermission, you know, Jan Baba has his own match in 60-man, you know, six-man tag team against Japanese heels, like like like, like Russia Kimura and, and his guys, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much all year long. And that was like a happy, happy time, you know, that too. And uh, then uh, in the mission comes and then the Jumbo's group, you know, against Ricky Choshu's group, you know, basically every night, you know, 
guys rotate, you know. Ricky Chosh, you team up with Killer Khan one night. The next night, you team up with Animal Hamaguchi or Yoshiaki Yatsu or sometimes uh, Kobayashi. You just kind of rotate, you know. But basically, kind of a routine, huh? Mm-hmm. And around that time, yes, that the Tenru was still babyface right underneath Jumbo, okay? So... Tenru wasn't still wasn't really the big big superstar of himself later on. That that hasn't happened yet. Okay, that's a picture. And uh, yeah, uh, Jam- it really forced Jumbo to come out. You know, come up with his real natural. You know himself like he's actually physically a lot bigger than any of these Choshu's guys. Much bigger, taller and heavier. Yeah, much bigger. So he started working like more like a monster, like a Japanese stance, Japanese bruiser body mm. kind of thing. Even his facial expressions kind of started to change in the this around this time. He he had a kind of a baby face look with the the uh, fluffy hair and the Texas pants. And by the yeah, 80s, yeah. he was a little heavier, a little meaner. He acted like the enforcer in all Japan. He acted right, like a, right. he was a new role. New role he was taking yeah, on. It was much like your, you know, late nineties NWO type of thing that the uh, whole bunch of Japanese heels, a whole bunch of fresh heel coming into your company as a as outsiders, you know? Mm-hmm. That was Ricky Choshu. And actually a lot of people loved Ricky Choshu's group over New Japan I mean uh, all Japan guys. You know, a lot of the male fans traditionally always Secretly loved heels over babyface, huh? I have a question for you, and it relates yeah. to this. So when you say, you know, Choshu turned on Fujinami, and he and his group Ishingun, they became Japanese heels. But when you say heel in Japan, does it mean exactly the same thing when we think heel in, say, United States? Like a rule breaking, and yeah, uh, like a, no, it's more like a, they treat it like you're. Uh, philosophical difference <laughs> mm. you know what i'm saying and and choshu's group kind of had more of a all the guys their personalities seemed to have an edge they were a little more maybe they didn't get really good grades in school compared to uh other top stars on the other side they were and all of them had like a goatee or you know or mustache shaggy hair yeah yeah right or different costume not like your uniform new japan Black trunks and black boots, you know. Ricky Choshu had black trunks, but white boots. Animal Hamaguchi had his Tarzan tights. Mm, one strap. Yeah. And the Killer Khan, always dressed like Killer Khan, the, mm-hmm. Mongol- the Mongolian. Um, Yoshiaki Yatsu, always dressed like your Masa Saito getup, mm-hmm. you know, the, the knee tights with Japan on it. And uh, yeah, it's like, a, yeah, dressed like heel. But it wasn't like a rule breaking, cheating heels. It, like a, they work like tough guys. Does that make sense? Yeah, it felt like they were the away team coming into the home team's field. Yeah, or like uh, outcast guys. Yeah, they're the outsiders. They were outsiders, outsiders compared with that. Made people like Fujinami even cleaner. You know, right? And on the even bigger baby face. And uh, all Japan too. On the other side, it. Kind of yeah, made jumbo. It's like like a, you know your strong New Japan fans is like a, keep and save all Japan from these outsiders, mm. right? Mm. Yeah. So some of these people, yes, 
really behind Jumbo and Tenru then. But Ricky Choshu positioned as heel, but these guys are cool guys, you know? Cool heels. Cool heels, yeah, yeah. But uh, nonetheless, that the, the whole lineup became, you know, that the Japanese babyface, all Japan side against Japanese heels, the, uh, the Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, Ricky Choshu's group, formerly known as Ishingun. Then they pretty much pushed American guys into mid card. You still had, you still had, you know, Stan Hansen, of course, on top, and all the other American come in and rotate, you know. And uh, that made also people like Great Kabuki, all Japan side, like a babyface. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, saving the company from the outsiders. And so they changed a little bit of layout of it, but the, made Jumbo clear, clear babyface. Mm -hmm. Not not challenging to a bigger name, you know, like when he challenged people like, you know, Dory Funk to Jack Briscoe to Holly Race to Terry Funk, all the way to Ric Flair. He was the guy who's challenging big for, for the bigger thing. But all of a sudden, after Ricky Choshin, his group came in, Jumbo was the one who was defending the company. Mm, he's protecting, you know protecting the Holy Land. Yeah, yeah. And then Baba is not involved in the actual fight. He became more of a boss in fans' eyes, too. Right. And he would start doing yeah. more of the funny matches with Russia Kimura and... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. So that was a nice part before the, in, 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 in the mission, like I said. And Giant Baba never really had single match against people like Ricky Choshu. No. Or Killer Khan. You know? He was in the... He would. He wasn't on the first or second matches, but he he phased himself yeah, the out. The fourth match, fourth match, right before the intermission, mm -hmm. and after the intermission, the match gets serious. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And only time John Baba had actual match matches against people, Ricky Choshu's guys were during the tag team tournament in December. Right. Yeah, tag team of what uh, Baba and Dory Funk together, or Baba against Jumbo sometimes. Baba and later on, a little bit later on, Baba and Stan Hansen mm -hmm. team up together. 94. As the senior guys, yeah. Um, but the, that was Ricky Choshu and his guys entered his real tag team tournament in December. Therefore, once a year, Baba's team and Ricky Choshu's team faced against each other just once. And the photographers are there to just shoot the moment where Ricky Choshu put the Scorpion Deathlock, Sasori Gatame on Giant Baba, just to take that one picture, you know? <laughs> but it was, <laughs> so they touched each other yeah. for just a few minutes. Yeah. But there was never a serious competition, or even people wanted to see it even, you know? That uh, they knew and we knew there was like a, Two different generation of wrestlers. John Baba, much older, and everybody knows he's a boss, you know, but still in the ring. So, so, so it was good. So it was yeah, a real big shift, big shift in pro wrestling. Big shift. And like I said, that the member of Ricky Choshu's group, Ricky Choshu, the Killer Khan, the Yoshiaki Yatsu, the Animal Hamaguchi, the uh, Masa Saito a little bit once or twice coming back from States, mm -hmm. and Kunyaki Kobayashi, of course, that the, he was the biggest rival of original Tiger Mask mm -hmm. and wearing red pants like your Benny Jet Yukide, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, martial arts superstar. Yeah, the, the Kung Fu, uh, Karate Kung Fu, he, yeah, he death pants, match right. in Hong Kong. He was very, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very popular. That was, uh, he he um he put the same same red 
tights, I mean, uh, pants, mm-hmm. you know, and that was Kobayashi's gimmick. Anyhow, that uh, that was the time that the two-year period, 1985, 1986, two-year period, on, on top of this Ricky Choshu's group, um, nine, as of 1986, then rookie, 1984 LA Olympic guy, Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki right out of high school, they joined Ricky Choshu's group. Mm-hmm. Later on, two became superstars, right? Mm-hmm. A very strong faction. But a, a different a different path because uh, Choshu would end up leaving. He would return back to uh, to New Japan. In 87. Yeah, yeah, right before. After a two-year run. Yeah. So right. at 87, so it seemed, you know, it, it was back to Jumbo's uh, house again. And Misawa yeah. was Tiger Mask 2. Um, right. It was... Uh, and Greg Kabuki was still there. Mm-hmm. And Yoshiaki Yatsu was the only one who decided not to leave and go back to New Japan with them. And he stayed with Old Japan and turned basically babyface mm-hmm. and start teaming with Jumbo. Right. As an Olympian. Yeah. Uh, Jumbo also had a pretty uh, popular run with Tenru. Yeah, yeah, Kakuryu, yeah. Mm. They, they were that was that position. It was positioning Tenru clear number two, clearly underneath Jumbo, though. Mm. And also Jumbo having international heavyweight title single, and Tenru having UN United National Heavyweight title, which people viewed as one below international title. So the, he was positioned clear number two. He had to right after, not at, right, not right after, but after Ricky Choshu's whole 15 wrestlers clan, his faction went back to New Japan. Then, then he somewhat became scouting, you know, right? Mm. And uh, that was when Tenru really started, you know, showing his personality that uh, it's like he's not happy with this you know, position and he wants to have a single match against Jumbo and wants to who is better. I mean, all these very simple storyline, but the ones that make really, I mean, realistically make sense. Yeah, with the timeline, it felt natural. Yeah, and he assigned his, you know, another loner, Ashirahara, as his tag team partner, like another loner, okay, we'll, we'll get together, and became Ryugenho and uh, forming heel tag team. But never was labeled as heel. It was more like a same philosophy Ricky Choshi used. It's like an outcasted. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to be with this, you know, g- 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 this, uh, total baby face, like a goody, g- I don't know what do you call like it. Like a goody two shoes, like perfect. Goody two shoes type. I was looking yeah. for that word. Yeah. yeah like yeah. Uh, he said, I- I'm not going to do this. I don't represent this. I represent something else. Right. And what he needs is serious single match against ten, uh, Jumbo that never really took place while Ricky Choshu was around. No, nothing with a real definitive ending. Right, right. A lot of, uh, and, this time in the 80s, there was a lot of double count outs, a lot of, um, oh, yeah, like a face saving. Yeah. Yeah. It was real frustrating for all Japan fans as well because New Japan. And always gave relatively cleaner finish because traditionally Inoki and Fujinami beat everybody, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Jumbo against even people like Jumbo against Terry Gordy single match, they never gave, you know, clear finish. Right. You know? Yeah. 
and Jumbo against Bruiser Brody single match so many times, but he usually count out finish outside the ring or double count out or your dusty finish, Joe Higuchi referee, referee bump and something like that, you know? Mm. So it was really frustrating, you know? Because Baba was always to take care top names, like really conservative, old-fashioned, American-type promoter booking. NWA style. I guess, yeah, because you have to save face. Sure. <laughs> you know, because uh, they are from different companies and they're just American superstars are just having, just having tours. And uh, yeah, it's like uh, not going to beat them and send home, you know? Yeah, there's a compromise, so. Yeah. And around the same time, you know, 85, um, when Ricky Choshu's group came in, that's when Bruiser Brody decided to leave all Japan and all by himself joined, you know, signed contract with New Japan and had this 1985 program, Inoki against Bruiser Brody, legendary series. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And 85 was also the year that the Road Warriors start coming in as regular. Mm. They only had like one week tour here and there, but they they came in three, you know, three or four tours a year, one week at a time. So they made big deal out of that, you know, but the Road Warriors was added to the All Japan package which was good and still people like harley race and nick bachwinkle aged but they still have like a big superstar aura that the race and bachwinkle would come in probably twice a year and every summer you have mill maskers and his brother dos cares and after that summer action series you have dory and terry funk come in and uh, yeah so they had this your old japan had its you know annual calendar year that just much like your you know january means royal rumble you know april means wrestlemania mm. the, you know SummerSlam, the survivor series that all these other pay-per-views are important but the, all those big five tours yeah it's a big and in japan you have that the january giant series tour then you have a superpower series tour spring you have your serious singles champion carnival tournament thing and the summer you have like i said mill masker store that the funk store that in fall you have another giant series all the stars then december you have your tag team tournament and uh, yeah calendar year was strong and uh, jumbo was always on top of it but uh, i think after jumbo having these single match against people like riki choshu and his you know uh, more of a japanese heels they started people started taking jumbo a little bit more seriously like this guy wasn't just good wrestler this guy is big guy and tough guy because the ricky choshu and jumbo tsura single match only happened once in 1985 it was 60 minute broadway 60 minute you know of course no finish but <laughs> jumbo actually toyed toyed ricky choshu over you know with his physical dominance i guess you know he's much bigger than choshu yeah and then ricky choshu back then was the type of wrestler you can have great single match against certain guys but against certain guys he only has social matches you know yes yeah he, you know what I'm saying? it was up to how he's to, feeling maybe that night yeah he has to do this his Ricky Lariat, he has to be able to do his Scorpion Death Rock. He has to work like Ricky Choshu. And some of these wrestlers wouldn't allow it, right? 
or just look awkward, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Stan Hansen, Ricky Joshi, Joshi in a single match that happened five, six times, I think. It wasn't as good as your Jumbo against Stan match if you're an educated fan. Yeah, they're too uh, they're too independent for each other to, for it to work. I think somebody like Stan Hansen likes to go in and it seems like people follow behind him. It's his pace. He has to work like Stan Hansen. Yes, but Joshu has to work like Joshu. On the other hand, oh, that there's a style, style clash. Yeah, you know? it's still professional. <clears throat> nothing, nothing funny happened. You know what I'm saying? No, yeah, it just wasn't. Uh, it was maybe better in our minds beforehand. Or just two different cocktails. True. You know? Yeah, I just yeah, yeah. you know, uh, kind of like that. But that's okay because uh, they both went on to great success. So, oh, of course, of course. And uh, when I asked the Hanson in person how he you know he thought about ricky joshi the, the stand didn't think joshi was bad he thought he was he had his own style and then and if you didn't if you didn't like you know our match be it you know and uh he didn't think he was bad matches both guys looked like they're trying to win mm. you know what i'm saying yeah it looked more like um a boring mma match yeah but it's when you ask people like a veteran like terry funk you see some of the matches I didn't think it was any good. And said, I didn't think the match was good. Why well, so? Right? And then Terry Funk will teach you. Both guys looked like they were trying to win. That's what makes good matches. And your your good match and my good match this is definition is different. Okay, sir. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So I learned something from that. You have to look like you, you are trying to win because the whole thing of wrestling is make-believe, right? When you see a good wrestling match, professional, okay? When you see a good wrestling match, you would have this suspension of disbelief thing naturally without even trying. Oh, that was a good match, right? You should. Not just flying or not just very successful, complicated, high spot. It was more like one person fighting another person and each guy is trying to win. And the moves and transition may not look as smooth as your good match, good work. But if you are looking like you're trying to win that match, that makes a good match. It's like, oh, wow, I learned something. You know, so that changed me a little bit. Mm. And uh, Jumbo is another one of those guys who really wrestled in a way where it was sort of realistic in that it looked like he really wanted to end the match and win and overpower and, and, and put pressure on all of his opponents like he would in a regular wrestling match and he's so big it's convincing mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying yeah so but that made yeah the, the, so it's like almost like another run it's like another chapter of jumbo tsura's you know wrestling career the, his role up until then was this blue star you know american looking tights and having a great match so-called great match with american superstars that was his role up until 84 you know but uh when he started working against another japanese heels and japanese wrestlers he really turned another page in, in jumbo's career he had it in him you know and uh people started looking at him differently does mm-hmm. that make sense it must be he was showing a different side of himself to to the crowd. It was a different side of his. Uh, it just wasn't like what what he was like when he came in. He he found. And then, to me, you know, he wasn't working hundred percent up until then. 
now he shows emotion. Now he shows his anger. Now he shows his, his like a, like a happiness that uh, you know when he gives big you know clothesline or something they go whoa like you know then people react to it like you were with him mm. kind of thing or a big double yeah. chop that makes a big uh, bachi bachi sound of smack against somebody he would always use that <laughs> double chop yeah. um also and then signal the crowd they're like oh mm, right? that's right yeah because yeah. uh he, he just had that presence it, uh, who else could do that who else could do that and help uh help you forget about all the other stuff that might help uh, or might hold wrestling back you want to get into it you want to root for somebody who wants to win and like you said if um the match is focused on winning it's easier yeah, for like, fans uh, to get behind uh, it. it might be a newer term that everybody talk about strategically things right everything strategic but yes john baba strategically placed rookie jumbo into top spot right away as a baby face but uh, jumbo himself strategically made himself biggest guy and toughest guy by working against japanese group yeah like strategically, but it was kind of natural. And back there, educated wrestling fans' mind, it became clear that Jumbo is the biggest and toughest guy. Do you know anybody else who is tougher than Jumbo? It's like, right. I didn't like Jumbo all that much as a star and babyface superstar and top star and all these things. But now I believe Jumbo is the biggest and toughest guy. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, it became clear very convincingly therefore very believable does that make sense i think yeah i think so i think it's a mix of his time he spent there adding to his credibility plus being in the ring it's easy to just suspend disbelief and and get yeah and then gave him another edge by working against edgy guys mm -hmm. yeah and it also kind of later on it seemed to this is just my opinion it seemed to give him more of a Big bully senpai feel in the late eighties, nineties, especially when younger guys start coming up. Yes, yeah. yeah. So that's but before that, he did have that really important match with Stan Hansen, the Triple Crown match. Yeah, and put Tenru in that package too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That that elevated Tenru in the same. There's like a three Yokozunas. Yokozuna meaning Grand Champion, you know, top guys. Jumbo, Stan, Tenru. These three became equal. As of 86, 87. Yeah. But Tenru so, was still kind of that third man, a little bit. Yeah, third man. But the, you love underdog in wrestling. Right, right. And he yeah. he would go on to a, a totally different uh, route. We talked about that in a couple episodes. Yeah, but. yeah, because he had a longer career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, but it was his goal. It was his goal to you know beat Jumbo and people believed in him. I believed in the whole program. Mm -hmm. Can Tenru beat Stan one to three in the middle of the ring? Can Tenru beat Jumbo one to three in the middle of the in the middle of the ring? That happened with this new finish of power bomb. Power bomb became kind of a trendy move in late nineties. Jumbo used it. Uh, Tenru used it. Stan Hansen used it. Uh, Terry Gordy used it, you know, like it became like a very convincing move, the power bomb finish. You know, what Sid I'm vicious. Yeah, in, in, in America, America yeah, at the same yeah. time. Yeah, a little, yeah. a little later. Oh. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
but but Paul Baum was it, you know was a very convincing move. Yeah, I mean how, how I mean get picked up by it, you know the big guy and get slammed from from back of your head, the whole body. How can you get up from that? You know? mm, it looked devastating. It had a very powerful yeah, look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After Choshu's clan left, it was around the time um, 88, 89 that the the, the the big business change occurred in America too. You know, the end of NWA era, and WCW, you know, was born, and the WWE, WWF at the time, and WCW became two major company with national TV, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it's like hundred wrestlers, you know, under contract, and there's two all the local territories, so-called territories, up until then, it all went out of business. AWA went out of business. Dallas World Class went out of business. You know, Detroit, Indianapolis. You know, even NWA Florida, Central States. You know, all these NWA and other company went out of business. You know, they just really changed the map, right? It was, Were you following wrestling then? I was. I started following wrestling in 1991, 1990. Oh, okay, right. So that already had. So, so you had. You already had WCW National Television. Yes. Yes. I came right at the end, like the last. But when I it was New York, I didn't get much. Um, it was WWF territory when I grew WWF up. every week. Yeah. Right, only right. in Western New York there was after, other after, stuff. After '84, though, there's so many wrestlers in WWF. You know yes. Saying? Yes. So many. I mean, Vince McMahon Senior's era, it was still a big company, but you you only had like maybe 20 20 to 25 wrestlers altogether. Mm -hmm. It was like a team. Yeah. Yeah. Roster, yeah. And roster, right. And after Hulk Hogan era came in, you have 100 wrestlers in three different cities, you know, and running every day kind of thing. And uh, that influence the landscape of Japanese wrestling as well. Um, Jan Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling, the very st- strong ally, very st- strong affiliate from you know NWA era, right? Mm-hmm. The Jan uh, Baba's All Japan was the only company that the NWA world champion would travel. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Hardy Ray, Story Funk, all these people. That uh, Inoki's New Japan had had a business, you know, that uh, connection with WWF and all the New York superstar would travel to New Japan, Hulk Hogan, uh, Andre the Giant, uh, you know, whatnot, you know. But uh, that really changed the landscape. WWE and New Japan finished their, you know, their relation in the business relationship. Mm-hmm. So they had to develop their own American talent, right? Too, and a lot of Japanese heels. And the same thing happened with all Japan around the same time that they cut the tie with NWA and WCW. So you have your own American crew like Stan Hansen, the Tiger Jeet Singh, the Terry Gordy, the Steve Williams, Danny Spivey, then rookie Johnny Ace, Dynamite Kid after he quit WWA, if uh, Davey Boyd, uh, you know, all these all Japan American was developed that time. Remember? They were kind of the uh, the regulars. They would be on most yeah. of the tours or every other tour. You know that the Johnny, the Stan Hansen, Johnny S, Danny Spivey, Dan, you know Danny Crawford, mm-hmm. the Doug Furness, Terry Gordy, Steve Williams. They were on tour every every tour. They're on every tour. So they were like a part of the Japanese roster almost. They were they were regulars. Oh yeah, they're, yeah, they're all Japan Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Therefore, actually, when you have regular, you, re you can really work program, you know? Yeah, and uh, it wasn't like in the 60s and 70s where the foreigners were the big monster stars. These were more of a... They're just having tours. Mm -hmm, they were equals to the rest of the Japanese wrestlers. It was more right. of like a so even yeah, sport. Then, then in a couple of years' time, that Terry Gordy and Steve Williams will be in, in Triple Crown pictures, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that made Jumbo uh, like a giant Japanese baby face again. You can work against Tenru's, you know, heel group. You can work against the, the American, you know, like a Stan and other, you know, Jumbo against Steve Williams, Jumbo against Terry Gordy, Jumbo against Danny Spivey and such. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. And it was... Maybe. To, uh, do you think it was just a, also a special time? Because that was a, a lot of special wrestlers that I don't think that... That doesn't happen often when a lot of those talents are all in the same place at the same time. Especially in that late, late 80s, early 90s, w with a lot of the stars that we were just talking about from overseas. Yeah, yeah. But Terry Funk, I mean, people like Terry Gordy and Steve Williams choose... Japan as their home territory over American schedules. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. After you know, start you know making eight tours back and forth, back and forth the whole year. Terry Gordy, Steve Williams, Johnny Ace, Danny Spivey, just like Stan, they stopped working in the states. Mm. Yeah, altogether. It was more lucrative. Because were, yeah, because well, because John Baba was paying them like annual contract salary. You know. Yeah, you make enough money just in Japan. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it wouldn't be a constant uh, grind of a tour like WWF would be almost every day. Non oh, yeah, yeah. Japanese schedules, actually, like 120 shows a year, even with all Japan. Three-week tour, two weeks off. Three-week tour, three weeks off. Mm -hmm. Four-week tour, three weeks off. And and people like, I said, Terry Gordy, Steve Williams, Stan, Johnny's, they were traveling eight trips to Japan a year. Mm. So when you go home, you don't do anything. Just rest. Yeah. And you can actually focus on Japanese program, you know? Yeah, you can, can build. Yeah, that's when Giant Baba decided to team up people like Koba then rookie Kobashi and Janius together as a tag team, mm -hmm. Japanese and American together. Mm. You know? Younger ones too. Yeah. Yeah, and the good-looking ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was success. And later on, they grew out of each other, and they can have their own single program too, very strategically, uh, you know, designed again. So then, let's talk about Jumbo's relationship with Mitaro Misawa because that's when he, by the 1990, I yeah, believe it was. That's after actually 87, 88. 89 program three-year feud between Jumbo and Tenru kind of ran its course and in 1990 the new money new you know new company that the SWS ill-fated but the SWS owned by Megane Super they started a new wrestling company like almost like a bubble economy company that the, they took Tenru as their top guy and Tenru decided to leave at the age of 40 and he finally could m try become his hand, known. yeah, become that his version of the number one guy, the main guy. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And never went back to New Japan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you, Tenru never went back to All Japan until like 2001. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Next 10 year period was actually that was like Tenru's prime time too. Yeah. And when he returned to All Japan, that was sort of maybe you could say a similar role to Jumbo's role in the 80s. The the guy who came back to sort of senior wrestler to protect the trad- or whatever Tradition traditional All Japan. All Japan. Yeah. All Japan logo, especially and in a rocky was, time. Yeah, and it was Mrs. Baba because Baba was Baba died in January of 1999, mm-hmm. and Jumbo actually died to year 2000. It was shocking. Mm-hmm. And 2001, uh, year 2000, Misawa and his 20 guys left Mrs. Baba's version of All Japan to form Pro Wrestling Noah, right? Mm-hmm. And he really became skeleton. Only two wrestlers left. Kawada and Fuchi, you know. Mm-hmm. Then a little bit, you know, a year later, Keiji Muto joins. But it was Mrs. Baba who made the phone call to Genichiro Tenru. Please come back. It was good babyface story. And we, you can, if you're listening now, you can go back into the Patreon archives and listen to the Tenru episodes that we did uh, last month because we went <laughs> right. into even but more the, detail. When you, but if you go, you know, if you go back and forth of 10 years to 15 year period that they might confuse our listeners so let's go back to where we were mm-hmm. in 90 1990 tenru left tenru left for sws jumbo's there and uh with tenru this time much like ricky choshu did a few years back that tenru took 10 years i mean 10 10 guys from all japan you know when he left for sws that really became like oh my gosh who's left right mm-hmm. That's when Tiger Mask unmasked became Mitsuharu Misawa, and that was his time. Everybody knew he was Misawa, but the, the timing was perfect. You know, Tenru's gone, and, and ten other guys are gone, and and you know you have you still have Jumbo, but uh, it was Tiger Mask's time to to go back to Misawa, and people were ready to see new superstar being born. Mm. Yeah. New style, new uh, Jumbo was really a great example of the All Japan style for decades. I mean, the, the style yeah, in the and ring. And also for Jumbo, Misawa was, was always like his little brother type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he never really beat Jumbo in single match situation. You know, it happened. That's why it was huge. But uh, yeah, um, everybody remembers this very historical match after Tenru left. Jumbo against unmasked. Now it's new Misawa with new green, emerald green tights, you know, that that's the single superstar being about to be born. Jumbo, the biggest guy, you know, biggest superstar and the strongest and toughest guy going up against uh, the Misawa. This is a test that the Misawa can, you know, really do something about this. And then, then, then the Misawa beat Jumbo for the first time in his wrestling career. So that uh, one night, overnight, like sensation, Misawa actually beat Jumbo. That was believable, like a very single historical match in all Japan history. It was a new chapter, really oh, yeah, clearly yeah. a new chapter you, being you know, opened. I have to point out that the, what's really funny about people's memory, you know, everybody remembers this 
Misawa beating Jumbo Tsuda in single match at the Budokan for the first time. Historical, right? Mm. Misawa actually beat Jumbo 1-2-3 in the middle of the ring. Pretty complicated finish, but uh, yeah, nonetheless, Misawa beat Jumbo for the first time. And actually, two months later, in next Budokan ma- match, the rematch was taking place, and Jumbo beat Misawa 1-3 in the middle of the ring convincingly. So the score was one against one. Mm-hmm. But nobody remembers that second match. Mm-hmm. It's not funny. It shows the impact it had. It was the perfect time to do the ma- the first match. Yeah, same thing. Exact same thing happened with people's memory. If you remember, Keiji Muto against Nobuhiko Takada, New Japan against UWFI match at the Tokyo Dome. Mm-hmm. Everybody remembers how Keiji Muto beat then superstar Nobuhiko Takada with figure four leg lock at the, in Tokyo Dome. So that was the end of UWFI, basically, right? Mm. But I can't tell you how he won the next and Takada won the next. I don't even remember. Yeah, two months later, the same Tokyo Dome in January 4th, the following, I mean, following year, actually only two months later, Takada came back and beat Muto, right? Mm-hmm. People don't remember that one. <laughs> I don't even recall off the top of my head. <laughs> I don't need, I, mean, I, I was there. I just can't remember it, you know, because the first match was so important and, and, and just impactful that, uh, you know, at the time, at the time, UWFI is like uh, in, right between your pro wrestling and MMA style, right? Mm-hmm. But there was no yeah. MMA really yet. It was still... No, not yet. But the UWF was the closest thing. Yes. You know, they don't bounce off ropes. They don't fight outside the ring. They don't do drop kicks or anything fancy. They just kicks and suplex and submissions. And- I mean, like they cut off all the fringes to be real kind of thing, right? And they invited uh, real uh, wrestlers with uh, credentials like Dan Severn and yeah, Gary Kazlaski, Albright. Or Kazlaski. Mm-hmm. Hash, uh, Hashimikov, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then Takada beat him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, Takada's peak year, you know? But something happens and then, and then the business declined and they took a, took up the business opportunity that uh, for the last chance that they can still run Tokyo Dome up against New Japan. And New Japan's top guy, Keiji Muto, going up against Nobuhiko Takada. And it's like nobody knows who was going to win kind of thing. I mean, it was hard to predict, huh? Yeah. Yeah, there was no... uh, Well, the first one, just like you said, it felt so much more important. And on the second one... Right. It felt like... The score was so pro-wrestling, though. One against one, though. One win, one lose at the end of the day. But nobody remembers the second one. Mm. So it really teaches you something that when you do this, you really have to win the first one. I think so. And it has <laughs> to be at the right time. It can't, it can't just yeah. be forced in. Right. So back to Misawa. Jumbo beat Misawa the second match. But people don't remember. They only elevated Misawa as your new top guy. Yeah. And he went on to become, you know, the top guy in all Japan. Next decade. Yes. Yes. But also one of the top biggest superstars in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and also uh, Jumbo kind of, he would retire not too long after this. Uh, Actually, in 1992, he took time off and uh, he, he got real ill and it was reported as hepatitis b or something mm-hmm. 
and he really had to take time off. Then he went back to graduate school in Tsukuba University. Mm-hmm. You know, he really, not a celebrity student, but he really went into graduate school and he wrote the thesis. And shortly after that, he started teaching in college. That's what he did after reti- actual, real retirement. But uh, after that, it, Jumbo wasn't the same when he came back, you know? He took like six, seven months, eight months off. But he, when he came back, that the only thing he could do was tag team match and come in maybe twice, three times during the match. And he does clothesline or fast press or, you know, something, you know, all the, just all kind of thing. It's good to just, just good to have him there. Mm, just to make an appearance, but he's not a part of the main stories at this or point. Or the title, title, no match title matches. Yeah, yeah. Right. But th- by then, not just Misawa, but the Ka- Toshiaki Kawada was elevated. Mm-hmm. Then second, third-year rookie Kobashi was groomed into this main event spot. And Akira, you know, Akira Taue was so-so, but the, being put in a situation, he can work. And you have then rookie Jun Akiyama. So all these younger guys becoming star. And that was 90s, very much. And plus new foreign wrestlers becoming bigger stars, like Steve Williams. Right, in the title match picture. Mm-hmm. And Terry Gordy and Danny Spivey, Johnny Ace, Doug Furness, Danny Crawford, yeah. Uh, Dynamite Kid and Johnny Smith, of course. Mm-hmm. And a couple guys rotated and started coming in too, yeah. So, yeah, that was a very much 90s era. And Jumbo was just, you know, a star from another era that, it was good for people to you know see every now and then. Mm, but if Jumbo never had, yeah, Jumbo never had full time schedule after '93. Yeah, and I guess you could say it felt like he he was from a different time period by this point. Yeah, yeah, right. And also past forty years old, you mm. know, he was forty something then. Yeah, but he, the style of that uh, Misawa and Kobashi and Kawada were employing was not what it was an advanced version, but. Uh, Oh, God, very advanced. Only five guys that I just mentioned can do it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And Jumbo Misawa. wasn't one. Jumbo was a different no, style. Jumbo just stepped down, obviously. Yeah. You know? he, he, maybe he could pull it off, but he generously, intelligently stepped down. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And time. also maybe, just maybe, he was, his mind, his heart wasn't in it already, you know. Mm. He left. You know, when he went to graduate school and started teaching in college and he became like a sports doctor, sports medicine type of person that he was really searching for something new. Yeah, it was he did that right where I am in the University of Portland, in Oregon. Right. And he started teaching. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Then we didn't hear from him. I mean, he when he left, he really left wrestling. It's pretty uh, interesting. He was a huge, huge star. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But he was intelligent enough to walk away and never looked back. Mm. Not too many superstars do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe him, Stan Hansen. Um, not too many keep the promise when they say they're going to quit. That's it. Quit. Really quit. Yeah. Oh, Stan Hansen retired as a top guy. You know, yep. aged a little bit. But he was still able to have convincing single match against every single one of these. Misawa, Kobashi, Kawada, Tauen. I don't think Stan was beat by Kawada. He was beat by Misawa, yes. And tag team situation, Kobashi pinned 
Stan Hansen in tag team situation, but not single match. And Kawada never beat Stan. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So he kept that, you know, very convincing position. And we don't have any uh, strange or, or sad memories of his career. Like some wrestlers, you know, they have different stages of their career and it's just they're not the same. But Stan Hansen was Stan Hansen. Oh, God, yes. He was. And Jumbo and was Jumbo. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. And that's when people really loved, you know, having Jumbo. It's like, Jumbo, Jumbo, Jumbo. It's like a chanting, you know, like, it's good to have you. And it's like, a, almost like a treat him like a guest superstar uh, for the Budokan show, mm-hmm. you know. He only came back once, maybe a one match per tour or something, only tag team situation, and never spend much time in front of the crowd. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Uh, so Jumbo is unique in that. Very much so. Yeah, he came and he his print is unique. Uh, he's similar to some other wrestlers that came after him and came around that time, but Jumbo was Jumbo. Like he said, I think he's another one of those wrestlers who was first, it seems like he was an NWA-style American wrestler before. Right. And he was right. adapting that style to Japan, just like Stan Hansen was. Yeah. And, and Bruiser Brody. And having program against people like Choshu and Tenru, he could work Japan Japanese style as well, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he had that credibility automatically from being brought in so early after the Olympics, and he was, he was essentially the Japanese funk brother for a while yeah he was yeah, the little yeah. it was the little brother they he was always with them and and you could even in his wrestling he had a similar wrestling style too yeah very similar to, to terry funk mm. yeah and dory funk yeah but he was actually quite he was a little bit taller than them with taller and heavier yeah so yeah, it made yeah. him a little different too I mean, exceptionally big for japanese person he never moved in a strange or or strained way though he was he he was slower, but he was athletic. Athletic, yeah, very athletic, yeah. And he know he knew when to do and when not to do moves. You know, when he was young, he was throwing drop kicks, two or three drop drop kicks during the match. But later on, after he became a little older, he only did drop kick once a year, like big pop. Mm. Oh my god, he can still do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Jumping knee attack, fine. You know, it's relatively easier, right? Mm-hmm. But the big guy like him. Remember, Stan Hansen did a drop kick every now and then. Sometimes, Bruce yeah. Brody, yeah, Brody, Bruce Brody had a mean drop kick, but didn't do it too often. People like a little bit later on, Vader had mean drop kicks, mm. right? And uh, drop in Japan, drop kick is really favorite moves. You know, fundamental, <laughs> fund. You have to have a good drop kick. It's really you, you're judged on that by a lot of fans. Uh, like a prof- you're a professional wrestler. Yeah. yeah you hear people at Korokun Hall, the, the hardcore fans will complain, you know, they say, oh, you didn't do it the right way. Do it the other way. <laughs> uh, I guess the fans in Tokyo are so educated and, and, you know, have so much information and well-read people, you know. And they're very demanding in a good way. Very demanding. Yeah, very demanding. That's right. Oh, and in a, a little bit off the subject, but the, in like in mid 80 into uh, in the uh, late 80s that that uh, Keiji Muto was saying he hated working in Korakuen. <laughs> really? You know. Yeah, cuz he, he he hated the people's reaction at Korakuen. <laughs> if you miss, you know, make miss move something and uh, people laugh, you know, you can hear it from the ring. Yeah. 
it's it's not a big place like we were talking about. You, you hear it, and uh, I remember going to a lot of big Japan shows, and there were always four or five of the same older fellows who would be in the um, the uh, rafters, uh, the cheaper tickets area in the yeah. corner. Oh, that, that's like they're like a critics almost. Yeah, like um, every <laughs> yeah. show, but they support everybody. They just switch between. Uh, Love it. Sometimes they support one. They tend. In my memory, these guys that I'm remembering really liked the older generation and didn't yeah. they didn't like a wrestler like Hashimoto Daichi, who was coming up, new guy. They wanted an older wrestler like right. Takayuwa. He hasn't proven Yeah, anything. show yeah. him. Yeah. Teach him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do yeah. it harder. Do it harder. But all these people had this, still had this different level of suspending your disbelief thing, though. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, like, prove to me kind of thing. Yes. How good you are. Yeah. And I think that... But some, some wrestlers didn't like it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's some, a different some style. Some guys didn't care. But the Jumbo and Tenry was always like, okay, I'll show you. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Above that, critics. Yeah, could, because they were real athletes. They didn't have to um, hide behind anything or any, any gimmicks or, or routines. become kiss-ass type wrestlers. Sure, you know sure, I mean? yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's like a being convincing wrestler is very important in Japan. Mm. Probably anywhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah, different uh, standards, but we, especially in Japan at this time, it was still viewed as a sport. Yeah, not your today's WWE universe. No right? entertainment, no angles, right. or, or, or anything more we than talking. have to talking. point out that today's New Japan fans, today's New Japan world, we should, you know, we should call it, uh, today's New Japan world is so much like WWE Universe, though. It's very much a, a kind of uh, insulated and a lot of new and casual fans that are coming to the product. And also, they just think it's work, you know, and uh, it's nothing more. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think when... I still think it's a lot more than or, or above just work. You know, I still believe in wrestlers wrestling, you know, and the real ability and the real emotions. You can't fake those things. No, and and people like Jumbo is one of those uh, wrestlers who he never came off as phony or or, or, uh, insincere or like a character. It was him. It's just him. And people like Misawa, Kawada, Kobashi carried on, you know, carried that part on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It doesn't insult your All these guys are much younger than Jumbo, but uh, now Misawa's gone. Kawada, Kobashi, both retired. My God, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Those errors are gone, too. They're, yeah, they're yeah. gone. They're gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. But now that the, we have YouTube, you have old videos that the, all these things that the, I, I'm hoping that this today's fan will go back and kind of study Jumbo's errors wrestling from Japanese tapes. Mm. This, this kind of wrestling exists. It's very convincing that will change you, change your perception of what wrestling is or what wrestling should be. You know what I'm saying? It's not just pure entertainment. It's something you can believe in. And I do. And uh, <clears throat> watching those YouTube videos, I, I say not just watch the wrestler, don't just watch Jumbo, but watch the crowd and watch how they reacted. I think it's so crazy <laughs> That people you like know, to what's, say. What's so funny, you know, that the old videos you, you see on YouTube, Korak and Ho looks much bigger. Yeah, yeah, it was shot in that like video. That. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I think they used to put more people in there, 
then uh, in 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 the late eighties into nineties, that the fire marshal, you know, really cleaned up. You can't put that many people in here. You know what I mean? Yeah. How much? Like two thousand? Uh, th- actually seventeen hundred. Okay. That's it. So it's really not. They that used big. to call. Yeah, but the, they used to pack twenty five to three thousand people in there. That's crazy you know? though. Because when it's sold out, <laughs> I mean, it's packed. You, yeah, and then how are you gonna escape when you really have fire or something? You know? It's on the fifth floor. Yeah, of the building. Scary. And it's yeah. it's a really small elevator. It's just, you know, a normal elevator. It's a regular kind of building. It's it's next to a TGI Fridays. It's like a kind of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, the, the TGI Fridays is the first floor, yeah, of mm-hmm. the building. And second floor is a Chinese restaurant, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then third, fourth, fifth is treated as, yeah, uh, Korakuen Hall. But it's just a building. Yeah. 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 It, Nippon TV actually owns it, you know. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. And also the uh, the company called Tokyo Dome owns it. Mm, like Tokyo Dome yeah. City uh, property. Yeah, it's a whole complex. It's owned by that, that group. Yeah, Yeah, I guess for people that don't know, the Tokyo Dome is not just the arena, but it's kind of like a area where there's a lot of games and... Uh, 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 the Korakin theme park. Korakin yeah. theme park and uh, baseball. The Prism Hall. Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, a recreation. Restaurant in Tokyo Dome Hotel. Yeah, the whole complex. Sizzler. Whole yeah, Sizzler, that too. I go there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like when you, after, it's a useless trivia, but uh, after Korakan Hall show, you know, if you go to Sizzlers, you run into wrestlers and their family. Sure, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. That's a culture, right? That is, yeah, because it's Tokyo. It's, it's a wrestling mecca. In a lot of ways. I guess so. Well, it's yeah, so condensed yeah. because, and there's so much wrestling. Like you told me once that you said there's over a hundred independent promotions just in Tokyo. Yeah, just in Tokyo. The ones who have website and their own name and a phone. Yeah. Some of them are like an office, or somebody's house or something, you know, somebody's apartment, but still wrestling group. Mm-hmm. Whomever ran wrestling one time or another running it. So it's like a over 100 group now. Oh my gosh. Wow. But but that that only made bigger company bigger and smaller company smaller. Right. Yeah, that makes <laughs> yeah. sense. Much like your economy, richer people became richer and uh, poor people became poor or something. You know, not that good. But uh, you know what I'm saying? I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. But even you are, you know, uh, you started as a like you know, Kota Ibushi and Kenny Omega as a perfect example. They started with DDT, right? Mm-hmm. And they were discovered by New Japan and got signed away with real lucrative contract and became New Japan superstar. Mm. You know, so that kind that method didn't happen in Jumbo and you know Tenru Fujinami Choshu era. No, it, it wasn't. Uh... Two, yeah, two big company, and you may go back and forth a little bit, but only top stars. You know. Yeah, it was. It was just a different. Uh, of course, it was a different time, but the way the information traveled was way slower much much slower oh it was yeah we have to add that this was before internet era right mm. so or any any live streaming on, on your computer screen and a match in january and a match in july felt like forever between them <laughs> summer action yeah. series and the you know the, the tag things at the end of the year it felt yeah. much farther away Oh, yeah, it was slower, I guess, yeah. And now it's, you know, and, faster. And Inoki's New Japan, 
and Baba's All Japan, they both have network channel contract. Yes, you know? yes. Nippon TV Channel 4 or Channel 5 TV Asahi. Those are like a major league of wrestling. Then there was UWF who were going to change wrestling into legitimate contest. And the whole concept after UWF, the Fujiwara Gumi, the, the Akira Maeda's rings, the Funaki and Minoru Suzuki's pancreas, they all eventually became MMA how you know as MMA today. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, right? That's another subject for another day. Yes. But uh, traditional wrestling, Giant Baba's Old Japan, Antonio Inoki's New Japan still remain uh, uh, as a major group, major league of professional wrestling. Mm. Funny thing is though, New Japan Pro Wrestling ex exists today, but it has nothing to do with Antonio Inoki. And Old Japan Pro Wrestling still exists with the same logo. Uh, it's not Giant Baba's company. Yeah. Or Mrs. Baba's company. It's uh, definitely the new generation of both companies, but, uh, you know, time goes on. In, in, in this whole industry, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, Jumbo is an uh, important figure of uh, a time that won't come back. It's just he was on top. Uh... Yeah, and hindsight is like, uh, it was really shocking that uh, John Baba died, you know, January of 1999. It was really shocking, right? Because mm. he was working in the ring up until December of the following, you know, that the previous year, not, you know, December of 1990, you know, and then he got sick and uh, then he pretty much died shortly. Then one year later, year 2000, Jumbo passed away. Suddenly. At the age of 49. So not suddenly, but yeah, he, well, he was so relative. private about his condition. Mm. You know? and, and Baba yeah. was too as well, is that correct? Uh, I think so. Yeah, didn't tell. He was fine. He wasn't fine then, but the, you know, he must have had a lot of pain, huh? Mm. But he was working in that ring until one month before his death. You know, yeah. Very interesting times, but that that pretty much does it with Jumbo Tsuruda. That was that was his career yeah, because this, this is something about old Japan. See, Giant Baba is gone, Jumbo Tsuruda is gone, Misawa is gone, or people like you know main referee Joe Higuchi or Okuma, the Koma, the Russia Kimura, the all these key players are all dead. Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Inoki is still well. I mean, still in hospital, but uh, he, he, he's still around. You know? uh, I mean, Fuji, New Japan he's people. still around. Fuji, yeah, well, of course. He's like uh, the, the last journeyman wrestler in, in this industry. He's like a Bilbo Baggins from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he looks the same when you're 66, you know? Mm, and wrestles the same? I think so, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Jumbo, he's a really important figure in understanding what All Japan is all about. Yeah, yeah. So you have, I mean, bigger picture kind of understanding if you know more about Jumbo. Yeah, the, the, yeah. especially the 80s and, and introducing the 90s generation army. Or how to pass torch in that ring. How, yeah, how to pass his torch in a natural, organic and effective way. Really effective. Yeah, and the people believed in Misawa from that day on. Yes. And they, they so, didn't even believe it if Jumbo beat him two months after. It, it was too. It was so strong. People don't remember it. They don't even know? remember because that's how effective the initial match was. Yes, yes. So Jumbo put him over clean, which was good. You know, you got to do it every now and then. I heard yeah. people were crying in the crowd. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, ja- Misawa himself was crying in that ring. That's amazing. Ka- and Kawada and and Kobashi, you know, you know, carrying Misawa on their shoulders, they were crying. Wow, not yeah. very emotional guys. I don't think I ever really see emotion. No, they weren't. They weren't. So it's like that's how believable the the whole moment, the the, the whole thing was. And very meaningful too. Yeah. So that can take that kind of thing can take place in wrestling. Yeah. You're so involved. Yeah. And in, uh, invested in it. <clears throat> Hundred percent. I think so. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm I'm happy I experienced it firsthand. Yeah, I, I envy you for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was the I guess that we covered pretty much all the ground. Yeah, I think so. And I think if there's one match to watch, if there's not a, a person out there who is not familiar, I would watch the match that we were just talking about with Misawa and and Jumbo Shuda from 1990, the first one. Yeah, yeah, at the Budokan. Yeah. yeah, and also three previous single match Jumbo against Tenru, those important three single matches. That is must. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's gonna wrap it for now. Um, let's wrap up. If fans want to reach you on Twitter or Facebook, how can they reach you, Fumi? Yeah, on Twitter, it's Fumihiko Dayo. F U M I H I K O D A Y O. Fumihiko Dayo. Or just for me, Saito on Facebook. And don't forget to send a message if you had a Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I want to know who you are. Yeah, no, no, no strangers, no bots. Just you know, introduce yourself like uh, you would in person. Um, yeah, and I'll respond. Yes. Yeah, and I'm I, I'm at Justin M Nipper K N I P P E R on Twitter. You can leave comments there or on the Patreon in our comments yeah we should take a lot, a lot more questions huh yeah yeah and, and we're covering a lot of topics from from some fans who sent some uh, requests in and i i think we've hit some of the we've hit the lucha libre in japan and jumbo and tenru so next time we'll come at you with a new surprise but uh i guess for now uh until then so long from tokyo thank you you're very on top of it thank you.